Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm joined here today by Alexander Bolkin, co-founder of CoinFund and architect at Adapt. Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Let's start with with introductions. Can you talk about you know what you're working on r- right now? More importantly, how you got into the space, where your sort of aha moment was? Well, I started by you know I I knew about Bitcoin for quite a while. I could didn't quite understand it at first. I was working at Goldman back then, and the aha moment came in 2015 when my partner, Jake Brookman, showed me the Ethereum white paper, and then the Augur white paper that was really the the extra piece on top of the Ethereum that made me understand just how powerful this technology could be. I started really looking at it. I started investing with Jake uh, a little bit of my own money. And eventually, that became my sort of full-time job uh, after I left Goldman in August 2016. And, and some people are are you know, brought in by the by the narrative of sound money, you decentralize decentralized money. Others are, are brought in by you know sort of this construct of new incentive machines. For you, is m- mostly the latter. Um, yes, I think uh, for me, I, I realized a few things. I realized that this was a way to create incentives where. We, we couldn't do that before. This was a way to um, create an economic innovation in, in the way that we couldn't before. This was a way to create efficiency in commerce and, uh, you know, integrate finance into a technology product that also seemed very important. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at sort of the arc of your of your career before before getting into it, I mean, you have you know interest in philosophy and, and math and spirituality and you mentioned you know uh, conflict facilitation and you worked at Goldman for how long? Uh, quite a long time, about thirteen years. Wow. How do you explain you know, Goldman in terms of the arc of your interests and career, and then how do you explain you know the, the transition to crypto? Goldman was a great place to work for me. I dealt with. First of all, I learned a whole ton about how large systems work and how large organizations work. And a lot of my work had to do with human-computer interaction, believe it or not, because I was building systems that had to be very reliable. And a major part of reliability has to do with with human sort of sort of human as a weak point, right? And so you really had to understand how to create systems that have sort of the right interface with the person that operates them that reduce the numbers of, of, of bad mistakes. So, for example, my boss had me read all kinds of articles about disasters, the notably the 2008 Air France crash uh, off the coast of Brazil that was, you know, horrible human error that came from the interface of the airplane being not designed uh, correctly. And and so I was thinking about those things for the whole time I was at Goldman. Also, learning organizational and, and, and uh, social psychology, you know, and conflict facilitation informed me of how human communities and systems work, which then really culminated in crypto because all of these systems, you know, crypto networks are really you know, a computer facilitated human interaction. It's not a usual way to think about it, but that's how I always think about it. Yeah. When you, you know, you spent 13 years at Goldman, so you must have seen a lot of the organization. As you reflect back on that time and look forward in the future, you know, five years out, 10 years out, you know, what parts of Goldman do you think, oh, you know, this won't exist anymore, or this is just absolutely going to get disrupted? Or what parts do you think, hey, actually, Goldman is going to play this type of role in in the crypto space and is going to do it better than people who are doing it right now? Like, how do you see that organization or organizations like that? In, in uh, it's, it's a little bit hard to make predictions, but I think companies like Goldman and, you know, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley are fairly safe today. But, you know, the, the financial services that are going to be disrupted tremendously are consumer banks. Because, you know, when 
millennials and younger people start looking for services, they're going to be prioritizing, you know, integrated products, uh, good user experience, you know, technology. And banks just think it's okay to make you come to a branch to send a wire transfer. And, and that's just going away. One thing you're, you're, you've been thinking a lot about is, uh, is decentralized programming and, and the future of decentralized programming. Talk a little bit about you know, what that is, what it even means to, to be decentralized. People throw out that term a lot. Yeah, there's uh, probably no good definition of decentralization. Um, if you read Balaji Srinivasan's article, and I hope you post the link to that with the podcast, you know, he talks about decentralization in terms of uh, resilience to failure. But I think decentralization is more than just resilience. I think decentralization is a model where the incentives are such that the system is unable, the incentives are such that you can't break the social contract that the system promises to to adhere to. Uh, you know, so for example, you know, in, in banking and payments, if you make a social contract that Nobody can take your money away, for example. And then banks come and lock up your bank account because they got a letter from, you know, because they can't KYC or something like that. You know, that's that's a broken social contract. And that's where Bitcoin came from. The entire thinking behind Bit- Bitcoin is that the social contract of Bitcoin is that you own your money and nobody can do anything about it. You know, nobody can take it away. Nobody can prevent you from sending it to people. And so Bitcoin is not just a resilient network. It's definitely resilient, but it's most importantly a network in which this social contract cannot be broken. And you can extend that thinking significantly because, for example, Facebook or any social network can promise, you know, no censorship. But if it's a centralized company that's running the network, they can still censor you and they will if they have to, right? And so to make a really strong social contract, you need you need not just a resilient system, you need a you need a decentralized system. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about adapt? So, you know, it's a bit of a jump from from decentralization to adapt, but but I think adapt comes on the heels of some thinking that I've been doing in the space, you know, in the past two years I've I've been really working closely with, with a number of projects. And I've been observing, you know, I've been observing founders try to go get go to crypto and then just be unable to do what they want to do because of how crypto works today. And and that comes, you know, in multiple forms. That limitation comes in multiple forms. There are, you know, security constraints. There are user experience problems that are imposed on on the decentralized applications by the platforms that. Are supposed to help decentralized applications come to, uh, you know, come to users. There are limitations in what decentralized applications can do. So adapt is kind of, you know, all the thinking behind adapt is 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 trying to to be the the next generation of thinking in blockchain, and and it's primarily based on the the the, the questioning of the assumptions behind large decentralized networks. So large decentralized networks like Ethereum and EOS, you know, they they offer themselves as platforms to applications, but but because they're large and because they're universal, you know, that 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 makes the experience of application developer trying to do right by their users very complicated. Uh, you know, and there are reasons I can go to as to why, but but let me stop there and see if, if what I just said so far is clear. So what does Adapt offer to, to applications? Well, so so a number of things. Adapt is a is a software toolkit that is not a network of its own and doesn't have a token of its own. And so it's a software to build a custom decentralized network. And so because it allows your application to run on a custom network, it gives your application a lot more choices with respect to how it, it sets up the ecosystem and the incentives for all the participants in the network, right? So, for example, we can think of, you know, what are, what are the, the incentives behind, you know, miners of Ethereum, right? The, the incentives for miners is, is they're basically mining Ether, and that's all they do. And so they will not be the people to do work on behalf of your application. However... A lot of applications need people to do work for it, not just users, right? And not just service providers. Like, for example, you know, CryptoKitties has a contract that incentivizes people to ensure that 
the, that the digital cats are born, right? There's a CryptoKitty birthing contract that the community has to call to create new CryptoKitties. You know, Augur Market has uh, a group of people that are resolving markets. And that, again, is a service that is provided to the application. You know, the examples of these types of infrastructure and, and maintenance services are countless. Every application needs people to do something for it in order for, for the service that it provides to become solid. And more, more often than not, the, the miners of your network are in the ideal position to do it if your network is specialized to your application. And so ADAPT is a software toolkit that gives you an ability to program those things into your network's behavior. So you can launch, if you launch your network for the purpose of your specific application, then you can program all these things that, that your validators or miners can do and, and are required, in fact, to do on behalf of your application. And for that, you need a special programming environment because at the moment in crypto, when you develop a decentralized application, if you're developing it as, a, as an application on Ethereum, you simply have no access to miners. You have to develop your own uh, service provision and network operations community somehow, like LifePeer did, for example, when they were designing their share drop process, their incentives for other people to perform the share drop. They call it Merkle Mine, but that's one example where that happened. And it becomes very complicated if you can't do it with, with an existing set of, you know, set of validators. It's not impossible, but it's complicated. And, and another thing is that it basically creates a funding mechanism for your for your for your project that will highly align uh, all the people that give you you know set up you know initial funds the, the the it will create a way for them to become highly aligned with your application's future so the idea i call it the initial witness offering idea is that the initial witness offering um, idea is that you would initially fund the development of your application by enlisting future validators and what you would you know what you would sell to them is the right to become the validator on your network the validator of your network is is a you know is a party that will create the initial supply of the you know transaction currency of your network and so it's a fairly fairly lucrative process to engage in but you would require these people to perform services for your network, not just contribute funds. We see this dynamic in crypto right now uh, very clearly in that a lot of networks are setting up, you know, these roles of generalized miners, we call them, or validators. And, and investors are actually becoming service providers to these networks. It's just very difficult to do all of this if you, you know, if you're running an application on Ethereum or if you're forking an existing blockchain and modifying it somehow. It's much easier to do with a dedicated programming system that gives you the tools to program these models easily. Zoom out perhaps and say, what's the innovation or, or what's different, you know, between sort of, as you described, initial witness offering and the ICO as people understand it today and what are some of the problems that, that it means to fix? Yeah, awesome. Of course. So ICO typically distributes a share of the pre-mined currency for the application, right? And, and that gets you into all kinds of difficult situations. So, for example, you know, a lot of ICO participants will buy the currency and, and just hold it without doing anything and then just sell it speculatively whenever there is market. A second problem is that, you know, ICOs get into kind of a difficult regulatory zone where to incentivize people to buy your cryptocurrency, you would typically have to create an incentive. So you would typically make it make make that purchase profitable. You would, you know, create an appreciation thesis around cryptocurrency that you sell at ICO, which also then gets you into a difficult regulatory regime with respect to security regulation. With the initial witness offering, you do something slightly different. You don't sell people a transferable or, you know, speculative asset. Everybody who buys it will have to do work for you, will have to do work for your user community in order to exercise the profitability of the asset that they buy. So, you know, the 
the mining license that you sell at the initial witness offering, you know, and the word witness, of course, is a, is a synonym to validator or miner. Uh, I just like the word witness a lot, uh, but, but you can call it whatever you want. So, so this mining license that you sell cannot be, will not generate profit if you do nothing, right? And, and in that way, it has a potential of, you know, falling under a different regulatory regime. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't provide legal advice there, but, but, it's, uh, but it's an interesting idea to explore. And also, it creates a very different level of alignment in your network with your initial contributors. Putting us legal stuff, let's assume that was all figured out. What, what are sort of the barriers for that, that type of model to become perhaps more mainstream? Like people have to develop. Oh, oh, well, but, but that's very clear because, because very few people today would be willing to launch a separate network, right? To launch a separate network, you have to fork Ethereum or you have to fork EOS and you, then you have to code it for a really long time in a generalized programming language just so that you can create a class of, you know, licensed miners in your network, right? The, the, the problem in doing this today is simply that it's too technologically difficult. So, so ADAPT is a, is a programming model which makes that part easy. It makes it easy to design and build a, a decentralized network for your specific application, including the miner centers. And so in your belief, it's build your own, you know, apps should have their own dedicated blockchain, but not necessarily their own token, or, or should they? Well, if you have your, your your dedicated blockchain network, then you should have your own token. You should, you know, do an ICO or an IWO or fundraise any which way you want. But if you run your own network with your own token, it's still better than running an application on Ethereum because on Ethereum, you can have your own token, but you have to always also interact with Ether. So if you have a one-token system, you really have a two-token system. If you have a two-token system, you really have a three-token system, right? Because Ether always be, always remains a currency you have to interact with to, to send transactions to the Ethereum network. Same is true of EOS. EOS is always have to be a currency you have to interact with. So you simplify this picture quite significantly if you have your own network because your application currency is also your network currency. How does that inform how you think about value capture Broadly, some people, you know, say that we shouldn't be building any more tokens. It should all be just, you know, on top of Ether or EOS. Others think that no, you know, they will in fact capture the application. Will cap tokens will in fact capture the value. I mean, how, how do you think about value capture broadly? I was thinking about Fat Protocols thesis that was kind of first described by Joel Manegro and then argued with ad infinitum. Uh, by different people um, in the community, including my partner Jake and. You know, I never really believed it very much because it comes from the assumption that we have, you know, large networks that capture value at the platform level. But truth of the matter is, I always saw and kind of believed that, that the application ecosystem is what captures the value and that the network is actually disposable. In some sense, we already saw this a couple of times when applications changed their platforms, you know, storage moved from Bitcoin to Ethereum, you know, that, that was one example, you know, people are now looking at moving from Ethereum to EOS. And so you see that really, you don't observe that much network effect. You know, there's some, there's clearly a network effect associated with the platform because currently, you know, exchanging Ethereum ERC20 tokens are easier than exchanging, you know, your Ethereum assets for, let's say, Bitcoin, because you can you can do exchanges exchanges inside the Ethereum ecosystem using the decentralized exchanges. But I believe we're going to see decentralized exchanges that that span multiple blockchains. You know, people are looking at layer two with atomic swaps that basically creates trading between different creates decentralized trading between different blockchains, and consequently. You don't really have that much network effect at the platform level. So I think of value capture as, well, let's find a good application that has good economics. Let's make sure it can deliver a great user experience. And then its uh, fundamental token, it could be a 
security token, it could be a currency token, could be a discount token, but then its fundamental token has some some uh, value capture properties, right? And different tokens have different regulatory regimes, and you have to look at the detail of how the crypto economics works, but you still stay with value capture at the application ecosystem level without kind of artificially spilling it out to the to the platform. Where do you think people get sort of tripped up or when, when they think about value capture today, like in the current conversation, like what are some of the big, what's a big misconception people have? Last I heard Joel Manegro talking, uh, you know, he was talking about governance tokens capturing value, which, which is not, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, I think to capture value, you have to have an economic value capture, not just give somebody rights to capture an application because you know, value capture through governance is basically called bribery. And, and I'm not sure that's plausible. Value capture through token curated registry is another example of something that I haven't yet fully convinced myself that, that it can work. Although, you know, I've seen some people argue uh, different models for, for token curated registries, and I haven't looked at all of them. Um, so I'm still learning about that space where people get tripped up is, for example, and I talk about that a lot, where they say, well, we're going to create a, an economically incentivized GitHub or an economically incentivized Wikipedia. And, and there are reasons why Wikipedia, free Wikipedia will always work better than economically incentivized Wikipedia. So, so those are the kinds of things that, that people talk about where I don't necessarily fully agree. And say those reasons real quick for the Wikipedia. Oh, because it's very simple. To provide good content to Wikipedia and open source and free open source, you know, you get current models, get very few people interested, but those people are interested because they're interested in the output, not in, in earning money. And the moment there's a way to earn money, it's too easy to gain, right? So the moment money is at stake, you get the community of contributors becomes extended by people driven by the profit incentive. And I'm not saying that the profit incentive is necessarily, uh, you know, in a position to the quality incentive. But I know that there's, you know, the percentage of people who are not interested in quality will necessarily increase. And so you have to have a very solid model to ensure quality in economically incentivized content systems, but we haven't seen them work yet. You know, Steemit does not actually have a good quality incentive. You know, TCRs are not, have not been proven in the field yet. It's very, very hard uh, because quality is such a, is such a subjective measure that you have to have people measuring quality and then how do you avoid being able to pay them off? You know, so that's the complexity. A lot of people are hoping that crypto sort of ushers a new era of how open source, you know, developers, you know, get paid and, and maybe encourages people to, 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 to build things that they wouldn't otherwise in the realm of open source. Are you, are, are you sympathetic to that or excited about that or dubious about that? Given what you just said about sort of Wikipedia like systems? I, I, I've seen I've seen some good I've seen some good ideas in that space. Uh, so I like Gitcoin, for example, because Gitcoin just solves one very very simple and clear use case, and that's the bounties use case. You know, and and I think you know I think because it's going to a very simple and clear use case, it's not running a danger of kind of screwing it up by doing too much too soon and without a clear you know social model behind of it. So, so there, there are some incremental improvements there to be made, but, but I think, you know, whenever a curation model can come to market that works, that's where we get really going to see, you know, a disruptive and, 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 and radical change in that space. I actually am working on a project called Upstand, upstand.io. It's, it's very early stage and, you know, you can kind of look at it, but, 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 but I am, Personally, thinking about curation and Upstand has, you know, is, is designing a machine learning system that will facilitate curation by people. And, and, and I'm aware of how difficult this problem is to solve. So I'm not going to promise that I can solve it. I, I'm going to promise you that, that I'm going to try. Mm -hmm. but, but I tend to stay very humble when it comes to 
you know, solving problems that are this hard. Totally. Going back to the, uh, the initial witness offering for a second, some people are, um, hope that the ICO, and, and maybe it hasn't done this yet, but hope that it sort of democratizes fundraising in that it, uh, allows more people to invest who otherwise, uh, wouldn't. Do you, do you think that the initial witness offering, you know, will also do that or will it be limited to people who have the ability to, to actively participate in, in networks, the technological ability? I think you have to limit your investor base, whatever you do, right? There's a, there's an economic and a behavioral reason for that. And, and that is because in, in efficient markets, irrational investors drive the market for basically behavioral reasons. It's like, you know, if somebody is going to buy an asset from you for $10, you are going to buy it for nine, you know, and resell it to them for 10, even if you know that it's worth one, right? And so that creates very bad kind of price dynamics in markets. And so early stage markets, you really have to somehow limit the number of investors to, you know, savvy people who will behave mostly rationally. Otherwise, you get like really bad market dynamics. Now, the current regulatory landscape is such that you limit your investor base to people who already have money. And that has a ton of problems. It's, it's really unfair. It's, it's a rich gets richer model, right? And, and a lot of people are unhappy, unhappy about that. And, and what the IWO model offers you is slightly different. It says your investor base is limited to people who actually know how to use technology. And this is not an ideal proxy to rationality, but, but I think it's, it's a better one than the rich get, get richer model of, 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 of the current security regulation. And so, you know, the IWO model says you should only invest in this if you can run a network node. And honestly, it's something that you can learn, right? You can enter the group of investors that can do this. You can, you know, educate yourself. You can have a small investment in, into hardware or security or, you know, consultancy to help you do that. But it's not a, it's, it, it becomes a group of people that you can actually join as opposed to a group of people you can never join. You know, if you have a $100,000 a year job, you can never become an accredited investor, period. However, you can still become a technology-savvy investor. And so it would make sense for you to then invest in, in, in the projects if you know how to use technology. So in that sense, this new model is better. And, and in fact, you know, I've heard opinions, and again, I'm not a lawyer, that, that it could even work potentially in in the today's regulatory landscape without any change to regulation. Yeah. So what is the, um, so then it makes, you know, uh, products like Adapt that much more important. What is sort of the status of, of Adapt? What have, what type of feedback have you, uh, have you heard from, from projects about it? And, you know, what, what can we expect looking forward? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of early stage. I have uh, a, a design for it pretty much completed uh, the design and the architecture for the toolkit, the programming language design. You know, I have a couple of developers uh, working on it part time because I don't have the funds for it yet. So I'm self-funding the entire project right now. I'm collecting donations for it, which is unusual and maybe a little bit limiting in how much money I can, I can gather. But I'm fairly, I feel very strongly that Adapt should not be built under a business model, but only under an open source regime where people can donate to get the product out, but they, but their donations are, you know, are not, you know, profit generating for them. They can generate profit later by using the product. They can launch their own decentralized applications on it. They can launch products, wallets, you know, developer tools you know, and so on and so forth. But this early stage development process should only work with with donors. And, you know, they get a reward. It's a funny picture registered on the Ethereum blockchain, which is like a collectible item. I think those are very cool. You should look at the Adapt Kit website and reserve yours. You can you can put a reservation on it today. You'll be able to to actually get it later when when I finish the contribution uh, system. But kind of going forward, I think, uh, you know, once I get sufficient money to, you know, have two full-time developers, I can probably deliver a fairly usable proof of concept in about six months. And, and that will, 
you know, that will show you how easy it is to program applications and adapt, but it will probably not be production ready. And then there will probably be another six months period where you would have to make it production ready. And I'm hoping to get people to come to me and say, look, I want to build and adapt. You know, how do I do this? And I would tell them, look, you can run an ICO today. You can take part of your proceeds and you can dedicate them to finishing up their, the platform. And then, you know, we can together finish up this, this basic layer of it and then together start building applications on top of it. You know, I, I, I invite funds to come to me as, as consortium members that will receive early deal flow related to the adapt application development, you know, and, and I, I'd be happy to partner with funds. But again, you know, we should all gather capital together to finish the ecosystem, to, to, to finish the platform. And, and those funds are not profit generating. Everybody should contribute a little bit to make it happen. And then we can start building actual businesses on top of it. That, that's exciting. <laughs> that, that's exciting. Let's move to a couple, a couple of different topics. One is um, security. Um, why, why you think small networks can be sufficiently secure and what are perhaps the different elements of that? Well, I think, you know, I, I hear that a lot. I'm like, well, somebody says, well, look, if, if every application runs on their own network, then why, why, is, it, why is it secure? And, and my answer is twofold. First of all, on the individual level, security doesn't just come from the network security. It also comes from user experience security, sort of like how easy is it to manage keys? How easy is it to use a wallet? You know, and so, and so small networks can really experiment and create the user interface that people will find easier to use and consequently more secure. Second of all, proof of stake algorithms. They do provide sufficient security. If you ensure that your you know, initial stake or your initial minor licenses are distributed to people who are interested in your network uh, you know, succeeding, then, then that definitely gives you a sufficient amount of security. Also, small decentralized applications do not need Bitcoin level security, right? And, and adapt would actually allow you to first launch your application on a semi semi-centralized model and then slowly decentralize it to a to a higher level of network security. So so those answers kind of give you like a synthetic view that synthesizes different aspects of security and really points to the fact that you know small networks are actually sufficient for a lot of applications like think CryptoKitties. How secure does CryptoKitties have to be? It's a game. Right. You know. Talk about the the cost of attack. That concept that you write about, right? So I mentioned cost of attack in one of my articles, and and it's it's basically part of the same conversation. It's you know the the cost of attack on a proof of work network is actually harder to grow commensurate with the size of the network, and is easier to grow if it's a proof of stake network. So actually, the newer protocols have a better cost of attack behavior as the network grows. And so, you know, I, I have this article called Scalability of Value in Decentralized Network, and, and cost of attack is one of the reasons why large decentralized networks, you know, are actually not as secure as you think, because, you know, the cost of attack on Bitcoin is so much smaller than the total value of the Bitcoin network. And the percentage-wise, it's, 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 it's becoming smaller. It's, you know, not growing proportionally to the size of the net, to the economic value of the network. Yeah, so so those dynamics in the long run will will become very difficult for large networks. And you see scalability also in a in a different way than than others, or you think they're focused on a sort of different element of of scalability? Can you talk a little bit about how you see scalability of value and, and the difference? Yes, scalability um, is an interesting is an interesting question because a lot of people think of scalability as like how do we make Ethereum scalable. But to me, that's not the question. Ethereum only needs to be scalable because uh, it is assumed to be uh, a large platform. I already spoke about it a little bit. I think I, I see scalability, for example, in, in a slightly different light. Is like, how do you keep your code secure when it grows larger? You know, how do you keep your value secure when it's uh, when it grows larger? You know, how do you make your system easy to understand as it grows larger. So, 
these are all aspects of scalability that people don't really talk about very much. And they're, to me, very important. So, for example, the scalability of Ethereum smart contract security is a big problem because you have hundreds of smart contracts being launched, you know, every week or month, you know, on Ethereum. And to to test them to be secure against every possible attack is very hard. So, so you know, if you have a smaller network, you have an ability to lower your surface of attack in your application where you wouldn't let just anybody launch code on your network. You can introduce governance mechanisms that only launch upgrades to your application in a way that that, that is safe. And, and most transactions that user can run on, on your network do not involve running code. And that you know, makes your surface of attack in, incredibly small, which makes your network security much more scalable because you can have a lot of code in, on your network and you only need to test it against, you know, the few dozens of transactions that your network exports to the user, you know, buy, sell, transfer, you know, birth a crypto kitty, you know, vote on a governance proposal, you know. Totally. Let's talk a little bit about crypto economics. It's a term that's thrown around a lot. People mean different things when they say it. Some people are dubious of, of the premise, you know, generally. I'm curious, what, what do you mean when you talk about you know, crypto economics, where are we right now in terms of what we need to, to build solid crypto economic systems? And, and then let's get into, you know, the promise and, and what innovation they bring to society. Yeah, we're in, a, in an amateur stage of crypto economics right now, because we, you know, when we design, a, you know, crypto economic models for all the products that are being developed in the, in the crypto space, you know, we don't kind of do the right amount of work. So let me give you an example. So there's a there's a company, a friend of mine, Mike Zargam, started Block Science to provide data science services and, and simulation services to crypto economic projects. So so that's one aspect that's gonna be probably quite a bit bigger in the future when people realize that your crypto economic systems, you know, are prone to failures when they scale up. Another, you know, behavioral behavioral economics and behavioral finance testing in small groups is another thing that we don't do today, which is, you know, and economists have been doing that for a while. They've been running experiments with, you know, student groups of two, you know, three, four hundred people, and they will tell you how your mechanism design, you know, works with actual groups of people. And that's really important. The third thing is, how agile your system is, you know, how well can you adjust parameters? How well can you build control frameworks around your crypto economic, you know, financial behaviors like, you know, what's your interest rate? What's your demurrage rate? What's your, you know, what's your inflation rate? All of these things have to be driven by future observation, not by initial design. And so all of your crypto economic systems in the future are going to have to undergo a lot of testing, you know, a lot of engineering work. And then they will also have to have governance mechanisms that will allow you to tweak things. Let's talk about the promise. Like, why are we even really excited about crypto economics? Like, what what can they bring bring us that we, we haven't had before? Well, because computer sort of com- computer-mediated economic systems have tremendous power. You know, look at the at the popularity of crypto, and and partly it's because people feel that power. Technologically enabled money and technologically enabled financial contracts and financial instruments are going to be really, really big. The idea that your application can have economically enabled, you know, curation and economically enabled services associated with it. Is, is also really big. It's, it's like, look at how much, you know, look at how big sharing economy companies are becoming, you know, Airbnb and Uber. And honestly, you know, we're ways, ways away from putting Airbnb on, on crypto because, because we haven't gotten the, the reputation systems correctly yet. We haven't gotten the curation systems, you know, so, so there still has to be a central player, you know, ensuring that everything goes well. But honestly, like, Imagine an Airbnb where in every city you can become a service provider that that simply ensures that your you know travel experience is 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 going well, 
right? So now you can have, you know, a decentralized sharing economy application entirely on crypto, and it's entirely decentralized, and it has its own economics, and it's paying people to provide all kinds of services like mediation services, you know, services for when you come to a city and your host basically cancels on you the last minute, you know, insurance services. So we will see these complex systems becoming decentralized. And what it means for them to become decentralized is that there is nobody leeching value away from your network. You know, you do not have to pay your early investors. You know, you don't have to pay them out forever. You, you know, you don't have to be subject to potentially bad or predatory decisions by the people who are running your, you know, the important service you're receiving, such as Facebook or Uber, right? There's, there's slightly, you know, I shouldn't really call them predatory because they're not that bad, but they, they always will choose to slightly make, you know, to slightly compromise the user experience in favor of profitability. And, and a decentralized application has a chance of building something that never does that. So that's why I feel these systems are so important. Let's uh, debunk a couple a couple of concepts. So there, there's a lot of smart people out there who say that you know things along the lines of you know blockchain for for things besides money are are not only unnecessary but they make the application slower, more expensive, and that you know Satoshi used blockchain in very specific you know deliberate sacrifice of speed and cost in order to achieve you know sovereign level censorship resistance, trustlessness, social scalability. Like what do they? What do those people, and there's quite a lot of them, and they're smart, what do, what do they not understand? I don't know. I mean, they may yet be proven to be right. I have no idea. I, I tend to be very humble with my predictions. No, that's not true. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I think where I disagree with them is that there isn't a use case for crypto outside of democratized payments. Right? So take... Uh, Big, 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 you know, Bitcoin maximalist Kim.com, right? He launched or is about to launch or maybe already launched. I wasn't really following, but he, at least at some point in the past, he announced a, a Bitcoin driven uh, file sharing system. You know, honestly, he was so pissed off at the government, you know, trying to shut him down with his, with his previous effort that he really wanted, wanted it to be stronger. And, and I understand him, you know, he's a, he's a pretty radical crypto activist, you know, but, but when he announced that project, he announced that he would take investments from traditional investors into equity. And I tweeted, he never responded, but I tweeted, Kim.com, are you sure you want to use, uh, you know, 2018 technology and fund it using, you know, 1890s technology, right? Because, Traditional venture investments are an old, old idea. And ICOs are disrupting that idea, not always successfully and not always in the best way possible. But it's very clear that it's time for that model to be disrupted. And also the, the people, the, you know, Bitcoin maximalists are, well, Bitcoin and nothing else. And they feel that, you know, the vision of Bitcoin was somehow compromised by people doing ICOs, such as Ethereum, for example. And I understand where they're coming from. Satoshi never spent his Bitcoin, I, I don't think, you know, and, and, and Satoshi never pre-mined Bitcoin and ICOs were a new idea. But you have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, you need money to develop shit, you know, and you, if you can fundraise and then you can deliver a really good experience to your users in a way that can never become worse, that's like a major win for everybody. For you and for your users, yeah. right? So, yeah. so that's the idea. That's why I think crypto is much, much bigger than Bitcoin. Well, the other thing they they say that is worth debunking is, yeah, you know, you can build these these applications, but if you disintermediate middlemen, you know, what makes you think that you'll replace it with another middleman? Like, what makes you think that it'll be, you know, a bigger a bigger opportunity? I honestly agree with them. I don't think we know. I just think that it's worth trying. Yeah. Going back to then going deeper in crypto economics, talk talk a little bit about uh, more about disca discount tokens. What what are the innovations and applications you're most excited about there? 
So, so there's a few different things that crypto economics kind of brought back or is able to bring back to traditional economics and traditional business. And, and discount tokens were one of this idea that came out of crypto, and, but ultimately doesn't have to be limited to crypto. And, you know, you know how we were just talking about these networks that are basically driven by their users. There's a term for that. It's called a mutualized service where people who are building the service and funding it are not investors interested in profits, but are users interested in consuming the service, right? And so discount tokens are, you know, a, a, an economic model behind the business that ultimately makes the user the funder of the service. So let me give you an example. What's a discount token? Well, a discount token is a is the right to use some percentage of the service on your network for free or on your some percentage of the service for free. So, for example, if you are an innovative airline trying to start up, you know, and, and, and basically become a functional airline, you have to, you know, buy equipment. You have to buy a Boeing airplane, right? Well, what can, how can you do that? Well, you can get investment or you can get a loan. And both are fairly expensive in terms of, the future burden of capital that you have to be paying back your initial funders. Well, let's take an alternative approach using discount tokens. What's a discount token in, in the case of an airline? A discount token is just the right to fly for free to some extent, right? So now you can basically say, look, I'm, I'm starting to, uh, you know, I'm launching a route between New York and Boston, you know, and I will buy an airplane while, you know, as soon as I collect sufficient funds from everybody who wants to fly that route. And those people will be basically able to fly at cost, right, with no profit margin whatsoever because they are my original fun funders. And so then I can take money from them. I can buy an airplane. I can launch the route. And some percentage of my people are basically going to be flying for free. Not for free because you still have costs like gas and operating costs, but they will be able to fly at cost, which means very, very cheaply, right? And, and, and that's a, a really important innovation because you become a mutualized airline. You become driven by your users. You become funded by your users. You become governed by your users. And your users are ultimately the people who are going to be putting money and then consuming the service. And one of the applications uh, you're most excited about is, is, is pharma. I don't know if I'm most excited about it. It's never, there's, there's nobody actually trying to do this right now. But, but that was one idea I had when I was thinking of discount tokens. By the way, just to give credit where it's due, the concept was first suggested to me by Scott Nelson, the founder of Sweetbridge, and then Mike Zargam, whom I've already mentioned, helped me refine it helped us, you know, contributed to refining it. And, and as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that in, in, in areas where monopolistic behaviors become predatory, discount tokens can actually alleviate this problem. And so you, you can find an article I have on, on, on Medium that describe a, basically propose a model to fund pharmaceutical research, which uses discount tokens and, and fractional IP ownership to basically you know, do pharmaceutical research in a way that does not then later create monopolistic behaviors by pharmaceutical companies. It's actually very interesting, and I'm hoping somebody from the industry can can notice that and 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 put it together because it it can create a whole lot of difference. Really, zooming out, I, I want to be sensitive to to your time. We did a whole episode with with your partner Jake, but I just wanted to ask, uh, so we don't need to get too into it. Maybe uh, one minute on. Um, your thought on the future of the sort of crypto fund uh, landscape in terms of, you know, will, will all funds be, you know, doing something similar to CoinFund in, in that they're actively participating in networks? Will there be a rise of, of crypto quant funds or algorithmic trading funds that, or will that get eaten up by traditional traditional Wall Street? Or what are, what are your thoughts looking at the landscape in terms of what's going to shake out? I think funds would have to do this. They would either have to do this or they would have to be partnering with companies who do this. And, and ultimately, you will eventually have to physically participate in any network uh, in which you're investing. I, I think Jake is completely right about this. I think he noticed it very early. And I think, you know, you, you see a lot of confirmation of that thesis 
from from other funds, um, you know, approaching us with a lot of interest uh, in partnering around network operational services. So yeah, I totally agree, and I think it's going to be very, very interesting to watch this landscape develop and mature over the next couple of years. So I want to uh, to close out on naming a different lens of approaching a problem and then asking you to identify how a prominent leader in that field may would look at crypto or perhaps you know what that lens that you, that you have you know, gives you a different perspective than perhaps the average uh, average investor or entrepreneur. So let's start with philosophy uh, and ethics. Well, for a philosopher, I think crypto is is a, is an incredibly interesting topic to look at because of the way that technology starts playing a role in in, in society. And ethically, it also presents a, a really interesting field because, you know, the ethics of blockchain is complicated. You can, you know, you can look at things like FOMO 3D and ask yourself a question of like whether it's ethical to write code, you know, that, that makes people lose their money. For a philosopher, you know, the question is, is it ethical, you know, to write code that, sorry, for a philosopher, the question is like, can can code own, uh, you know, can, can code own assets, can code own money, can code make decisions, can code be, you know, litigated against? There are all these fascinating philosophical questions there and ethical also. What about spirituality? Could you give just maybe brief on your, your spiritual study and background and how that lens would, would be this? <laughs> well, I mean, in the last 30 um, seconds of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The question for spirituality is, are we creating a global mind with blockchain? How's that for 30 seconds? <laughs> I like it. Well, in, in closing, uh, where can people learn more uh, about you uh, online, which, which is they stay tuned for? And maybe if you have a, uh, you know, a request for a product or innovation, like, you know, for entrepreneurs, builders who are, who are listening to this or investors who are listening to this, where do you want to see more, more experimentation or disruption? Yeah, well, look at the, look at my websites. Uh, Adapt Kit describes the Adapt product project. Uh, look at my Medium, Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm I'm fairly active there. The innovation I want to see is question your assumptions. Don't just do what everybody is doing. For God's <laughs> sakes. <laughs> I think that's a great that's a great way to close a lot of that in crypto. Thank you so much, Alexander. This has been a fantastic podcast. Thank you, Eric. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 